0: Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts, please drop me a line at podcast at This week, I'm talking to longtime colleague and friend, Sholem Prasal. Sholem is the founding director of Bayview Insight Management, Inc. Over the past two years, he's been focused on pandemic resilience planning, in particular on strategies for going back to the office during uncertain times. Previously, he was the president of business development at Technion Furniture Systems in Toronto, and he was a past member of the U.S. GBC Lead for Healthcare Core Committee and a past member of the Canadian Green Building Council Technology Advisory Group. Sholom is certified in LEED AP Arido and is also an NCI-certified Cheré Planner. He delivered free lead accreditation coaching courses to the architectural and design community in North America and Asia over a five-year period, and he was awarded an Arrito Honorary Membership for those efforts. Sholem has spoken at Green Build, the AIA National Convention, the Health Work and Wellness Conference, IFMA World Workplace, Neocon, and IDEX. His articles have been published in the Cornet Global Leader and the Cornet Canada Chapter Newsletter. Welcome, Sholem. So first off, thank you for being a uh, guest on the show this week. We go back several years. Gosh, I'm thinking, I think we met when I was at CBRE. So that's going back many, many years. I know, I think you were mm-hmm. at uh, Technion at the time. So why don't yeah. you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself?
1: Okay, about myself. Uh, struggling to survive the pandemic and have been working at uh, going back to the office uh, through its various uh, waves that the thinking has followed or preceded the next wave and still doing that. And I think we are ready for another wave of thinking and planning and going back to the office, and people are now doing things.
0: I would agree. And it's actually interesting because I was looking at, um, at just the email exchanges that you and I have shared over the last uh, several weeks and just kind of, I've too been thinking about, you know, how the real estate industry as a whole, uh, is affected and sort of all of the different, uh, parts, you know, that make up the industry or sort of the, you know, what makes it whole. And so thinking about, you know, the construction industry, the design industry, the office furnishings, you know, and then obviously, the internal part of the organization, so HR, IT, corporate, real estate, and kind of all the players that really uh, have a have a say or have a part in, you know, some of the decision-making around what the future of uh, work is going to look like and, and kind of what the impact is going to be there both short-term and long-term. So I wanted to start off um, the question – uh, around just because again, you you I mean when you and I met, you were in the office furnishings industry. Um, so let's start there. How do you think, you know, the uh, office furnishing industry will be affected as a as a result of this pandemic?
1: Well, I think the office furnishing and furniture industry, as well as the construction industry, is likely to be. Uh, severely affected, but it's also likely to stay the same. If you look at the, it took 20 years for the alternative office to really get implemented. And we've had less than 20 months of a uh, pandemic that have generated a whole bunch of thinking. I think it's important now to go back to the reasons why to the, uh, business thinking and thoughts that uh, are being generated by this pandemic first and then come back to the office and construction and other real estate industries.
0: Okay. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree. So let's talk about the real estate industry then as a whole and and the thinking behind all of it.
1: Well, I want to go back further to talk about industry as a whole. Okay. And uh, fortunately, we have a wonderful publication called MIT Sloan Management Review, whose fall issue just came out two weeks ago with all the work being done no later than September that really dug into what business should be doing. And in one of their articles, let's start off with uh, the big question. Has COVID-19 permanently changed business strategy? What experts say? Well, they say it hasn't, actually. Uh, They say that while the content of strategy has changed as the pandemic has shifted demand patterns and affected supply chains and transformed desires, that really hasn't changed what business strategy should be doing. And some of the changes with respect to the pandemic are likely to be permanent. And they're also saying that the pandemic has just nudged us into the future that has been inevitable since the arrival of the Internet and digitization. Uh, the pandemic has forced the experimentation that COVID has brought that should have been done anyway. So at the top level, the business strategists are saying this is just an incentive for everyone to think right and think about strategy and think about integrating the company into the other issues that are changing right now. Mm -hmm. So if you step down a bit, and what I'm going to show you is why they think the employee is the focus of all this. And they have done, and MIT has a program called the uh, Culture 500. And, Who's being affected by the question of where they go to work? Well, that's the employees. What do employees think about corporate culture? What's important to them? Well, the top two items are with a measure of 17.9. Not sure what that means, but a measure of 17.9. The top one is employees feel respected. And what that means is that employees – uh, not only have the right to be listened to without redress, but they have the right to be listened to. It's not just the company telling them what's going to happen. Uh, and the second most important uh, item, which is uh, at about 16.7, is leadership. Supportive leaders and leaders living the core values. So those are the two most important items with respect to strategy. So uh, where does all this fit in and how do we get to uh, real estate? Well, the Culture 500 has really linked the attitudes of the employees to the performance of the company. The first thing they say is, A strong culture, and I'm not going to go into the 150 variables here, Mm -hmm. a strong culture is associated with strong financial performance. And interestingly, a side issue is the second thing they say is that culture champions are more than twice as likely to be led by women than our typical Fortune 500 companies. And, again, they come back to the respect. And that could be linked to women leading them. Psychologically safe environments, this is something that happens more in women's companies as a whole as in others. So back to what companies should be doing right now and how it will affect real estate is they need to talk to and listen to their employees. Because that affects culture. That affects financial performance. And what happens to real estate will flow from that.
0: Well, what's interesting uh, is just kind of going back to the beginning when you were talking about business strategy and the sort of the idea that not much has really changed. I think the key is from the standpoint of what the company should be doing, I can see how that probably hasn't changed. But when you look at what companies are actually doing – um, you know, that's what I think is really where this appetite for change is coming into play. So a lot of the points that you make, I think, are, are very relevant. I mean, listening to, uh, you know, the employee, uh, you know, the employees wanting to feel respected and, and, you know, obviously having a supportive leadership are all really, really important in, in order to ensure that you have a, a healthy, work environment or you're, you're nurturing a healthy um, and productive work environment. But it's interesting because when you read, you know, the plethora of articles and things that come out about what the current conditions are in most organizations and potentially even more importantly, the position that some of these large enterprise organizations are taking uh, where, you know, it's almost like borderline bullying people to come back to the office, it kind of makes you wonder, like, what what is the strategy? Like, why would companies be pushing this agenda of bringing people back to the office? It, it doesn't make any sense. What are your thoughts there?
1: My thoughts are exactly that. Uh, the MIT Sloan uh, Fall issue is rich in the concepts that really focus on the culture of the company It affects its financial importance. High on the list of assessing the culture of the company by the employees is engaging the employees. So clearly telling them what to do seems to be the wrong thing to do. Now, I want to throw in a point of real data. Mm -hmm. Friday, Allstate announced they were closing their 2 million square foot office in suburban Chicago, which houses between five and six thousand employees. They said, Oh, 95% of our employees are working at home right now. And we're not moving out of Chicago. We're moving out of this big building. And this is shaking people up, particularly, uh, not just the, the insurance industry, but the banking industry now. I don't think the banking industry is anything like the insurance industry. But this is what's on the top of people's minds right now. So what do you do about it? Well, what you don't do is you don't do what Joe Biden did in Afghanistan, which is pick a strategy and go for it. You don't say, well, we're going to get our people back to the office and go for it, because it might not happen. You need to have alternative strategies. Mm-hmm. in case it doesn't happen. They have got to do both, and they've got to be able to switch in an agile manner from one to another, and that leads to technology.
0: Yeah, I I agree completely. Like, I think, uh, if anything, I mean, if there's been any learning from this pandemic, uh, it's the whole, you know, emergency preparedness, planning, kind of all of that stuff that most organizations, I mean, I remember when Y2K, you know, we were planning for Y2K way back when in 1999, all the time and effort that went into to prevent whatever it was that we thought was going to happen, and then it never actually happened. Um, and then obviously, you know, SARS uh, back in, I think it was 2003, I remember going through that process as well, and kind of all the the planning around, you know, how do you prepare for something like that, and, you know, again, never really thinking of the longevity uh, of how you know, a pandemic can actually sort of continue on for, you know, unpredictable periods of time. And the part that floors me time and time again is, you know, as you read about, you know, the success of organizations uh, who have been able to be completely agile and pivot and, you know, say, okay, you know, yesterday we were working from the office, but we have the infrastructure in place to, you know, enable our employees to work uh, from home, and so, you know, it's business as usual and, you know, companies are reporting great successes, like more so than even, you know, them their employees being in the office. Um, and then you have a lot of companies who are, I mean, you probably have seen the debates online around, you know, uh, CEOs who are saying, you know, pushing the return to work concept and people not really, you know, getting it because it's like, hey, well, we've been working this entire time. And if you sort of stop and think, it's like, okay, that's probably true for companies who have the technology infrastructure. But it's not necessarily the case for all, because there's a lot of companies who surprisingly don't have the infrastructure in place to enable their employees to continue to work productively from home. Uh, But what I find is uh, surprising to me is what have they been doing for the last two years? Like, you know, are they are they banking on things going back to normal, or, you know, have they made attempts to try to bring technology into the workplace to enable this flexibility? Because, you know, if we're lucky, this pandemic will, you know, hopefully disappear at some point, and it'll be, you know, something that happened in the past. But that's not to say that there won't be something else in a couple of years' time or whenever. And I think the fact that we've gone through this experience has certainly opened everyone's eyes around the the gravity of it and what can happen. And so it's almost inexcusable to some degree where if a company isn't looking at their technology infrastructure, and that's, as I said, it's the, the infrastructure, the tools, like just everything to enable employees to work from wherever they need to work from, because again, it's no longer focused entirely on a series of buildings. How does that work, right? If they're banking on people coming back to the office, what happens the next time around right so what what are your thoughts on on that
1: well you mentioned agility Mm -hmm. um the culture 500 2020 survey put agility as the top cultural value and high cultural values generate high profits so that's very important there are companies that have been agile for a long time. Take Autodesk, for example. They yeah. bought up a bunch of companies, and uh, uh, what's the difference for the the employees? The paycheck comes from somewhere else. I worked for Exxon once in Princeton, New Jersey, in a walk up just like all the other uh, startup companies except for once a month from Houston, I got this paycheck. So companies like that are much more agile uh, companies are going to have to deal with the bigger elements than where people go to work. They're going to have to deal with supply shortages. They're going to have to deal with climate change. Right now, we've got uh, two of them meeting. We, we've got the gas prices shooting up through the roof, fueled by bad thinking about climate change. And they've got to make alternative assumptions what how are they going to do if people are not going to come back to work? Right now, we've got the studies on uh, the great resignation. A third of the people who leave are leaving uh, because they're unhappy with a company for years past. A third of them are happy with working at home. And a third of them want to do career. And that affects a third of the people in total. In the workplace, there are ways of making that a positive because as the company changes its technology, it may not need many of the people who are leaving. may need different kinds of people to run the technology instead of doing the operation themselves. So this is not necessarily a bad thing if you look at what the business strategy should be holistically.
0: I think that the idea that, you know, not as many people are going to be needed though can be viewed as a negative, right? Is is that in the traditional workplace where you don't have the, the technology readily available, you obviously need more bodies to do the work. And so, you know, how do you, how do you make the fact that you can automate some of these positions or not need as many positions, you know, a positive? What happens to those people?
1: Well, we're seeing uh, the great refusal to work, uh, 10 million job openings and 7 million people looking for work. It's not necessarily what people want to do are replacing what uh, the technology can do for them. So I think that's the way of dealing with that where you can, where you don't have to have people
0: with other people to people
1: contact.
0: hmm yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that there's there's truth to that. Um, I wanted to go back to uh, the comment that you made, or you were talking before about you know the startups and you know the agility and 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 all of that stuff. And you know, I've heard time and time again that there's a difference between you know a smaller sized organization, a startup, um, because they tend to be much more readily adaptable and agile versus you know large enterprise. Um, When we think about incorporating agility in the workplace, do you think that that holds true?
1: I think companies have been working really hard to bring that in to their large companies. I think that holds true, and I think that is a big challenge for larger companies these days.
0: And what what do you think it is that's driving that? Do you think it's the... The thinking of management, do you think it's the nature of the work? I mean, we've been hearing about, you know, you need to be in the office to be innovative, to be creative, to be collaborative. Uh, you see it mostly in the banking industry. You hear it also in the legal industry where, you know, there's a lot of, you know, tradition in the way those types of industries work or, or are you hearing and seeing that it's really across various types of industries at the enterprise level
1: I think you're hearing a lot of hopes rather than uh, data supported facts with respect to you're more productive if you get together in the office okay. right uh, I think that you are not hearing what people really think from corporate North America on the other hand you're healing hearing what professors really think in the MIT Sloan review who are remote from the companies. So this is a balancing act. How do you relate one phrase from an academic to the real activity of a company who may be saying one thing and actually doing another because what they are planning to do, they believe is competitive advantage.
0: Right. Really tough for us. Yeah. Okay. Let's shift gears now. Let's let's take this you know, down through some of the other channels now as we we think about construction and design and office furnishing. So, you know, if we are looking at a future where there's less dependency on office space, obviously there'd be, you know, potentially, you know, a lot of vacancy. So if return to office doesn't actually happen the way people are thinking or hoping that it will, uh, you know, how is that going to impact the, let's talk about the construction industry.
1: Okay, um, I want to talk about design
0: first. If I may, okay. sure. The
1: design design should be moving for higher up the food chain into the business strategy, and participating in the business strategy, then helping to design the places, the interiors, uh, the core office space, and also the hubs which are going to be generated from it. So design, I think, can really, if they are at the table, they can help a lot. Construction. Um, The data shows with respect to office moves that they dropped a a large amount during the uh, pandemic, maybe 40%, and have now recovered most of that what happens in the future is i don't know i don't think as many people the i i don't think the occupancy when you look at the occupancy average over a week is uh going to remain as high as it was before i think companies will see the value as all state did of shedding them their uh bit of real estate mm-hmm. with respect to construction well, there are other industries that maybe could use the space. Uh, we're expecting a doubling in uh, seniors need, needing living space over the next six years. Many buildings can be converted to uh, senior's homes, for example. I think there still is going to be upheaval, and anybody who is focused on a plan uh, to uh, for going back to the office is going to be in a little bit of trouble. I think we've got to stop thinking about going back to the office, going back to the real world. We need to think that the real world is now, and we need to integrate the office into what we're doing now, and that needs to be the focus of thinking. Back to furniture. Again, we've got the designers who are participating at the high end of the table, and I think what they need to do with respect to furniture is to promulgate what kinds of furniture are going to be used in the offices when people come back, because they sure as are shoot aren't going to be sitting at a desk mm-hmm. typing keys when they can do that at home. Now, with respect to furniture manufacturers, what has to happen is the manufacturer needs to take a look at its product breadth compared to what is going to be needed. And I think we may have some uh, sell-offs. We may have some purchases of other companies in order to bring their product mix to what's going to be needed from what it is now. And that's going to be an interesting thing to look at.
0: For sure. Before you you talked about um, climate change, and this is something that, you know, when the pandemic first started and, you know, There was the mass exodus of the buildings and people, you know, being told to work from home. I remember one of the first thoughts I had was, you know, what if this is like forever? What happens if, you know, people don't go back to the office? What happens to all the equipment and the furniture and fixturing and all the stuff that's in these buildings and all the effort that's been made around reducing uh, climate change and, you know, sustainability and all this stuff? And suddenly you have all of this, for lack of a better word, garbage (laughs) that nobody wants or needs anymore and I've always been interested to learn about you know how do furniture companies think about the existing furniture because as you say there's you know there's cubicles that you know people going back to the office they're not going to be sitting at their desk like they used to before because they've discovered that you know that focus heads down work they can do From home, they don't necessarily need to be in, in the office. So what happens to all of that furniture and fixturing that's in the office that supported old ways of working? And how are furniture companies thinking about that if, if at all?
1: Well, the last wave happened about uh, 15 years ago when the high panels all of a sudden were not popular anymore. One of the things that happened is a lot of people working in used furniture picked up some of them and repurposed that furniture, remanufactured it for other people. I don't think furniture companies think much about the old furniture that they sold. They're more concerned about how to rejig their product line very quickly to match an unknown future need that the designers haven't told them what it is.
0: Yeah, and I think that's where the comment that you made about, you know, the design having the opportunity to move up the food chain, so to speak. Uh, You know, uh, before this um, conversation, I made some notes, and one of the things that I noted was that the design industry certainly has the opportunity to lead change because of all the excess that's, in the market as a result of this pandemic. So if we think about design, not about designing for the unknown, but designing a, for, you know, a, a healthier, uh, more sustainable future, it's not about creating a new product from raw materials that are sustainably sourced, but rather thinking about all the stuff that's out there of how can you, reuse that product and minimize the impact potentially of what all of that waste is going to have in society. I mean, I remember back in like the nineties, they had those, like, and I don't even know if they still exist, but they had those like school in a box, you know, dock in a box where you, you know, ship up, sh- you'd pack up all of your old furnishings and you'd, you know, ship it off to you know third world countries that were setting up schools and, and, and such and um, and that was, you know, to avoid this product going in a landfill. And then, you know, several years later, it was the, the market was completely saturated. And so that program, at least from what I recall, kind of died off. Like they just didn't want the product because everybody was shipping their product to these places. And it kind of made you wonder is like, okay, you shipped it on, on the premise that it was going to good use, but did it actually end up in a landfill? That it's not marking you as an organization as being the company who's doing that because you know you've identified that you've you know you've diverted waste rather than you really follow where did that product actually go. Are those programs still in existence or, or what's happening from that perspective?
1: I don't know, but what you've raised is a very interesting point, Sandra. That I think we need to have people from various parts of the food chain get together and think about these things. Yes. If we don't, they won't. It's like pulling the people together to think about uh, the pandemic. And I think it is certainly a part of climate change, of of waste. So those people who are in that area should be pulled into this one. What do we do with the waste? Waste is a huge problem worldwide.
0: Yes, exactly. And then to your point also about, you know, the need for housing, whether it's for seniors or, you know, the homeless or other, you know, um, people in society in general that have always struggled with uh, affordable housing is, you know, can we look at this as an opportunity to rethink how we make housing more readily accessible to all and not necessarily just to, you know, those who can uh, can afford it, even from a space perspective. I mean, you know, the pandemic has certainly highlighted that people, especially when you have these high density, you know, neighborhoods where, you know, people want or run for areas where they can have more space. And so you've got, you know, the cost of of housing and, you know, living in condos that are very small and and very dense because you're in sort of the downtown core of of these cities is, you know, will this afford more space for people so that you don't feel like you're crammed into these small quarters that then becomes problematic when you have pandemic situations like this, you know, potentially happening again? Because I think that that risk is there, right? Is that we've gone through it now. Who's to say that, you know, we're not going to have situations like this in the future?
1: Well, with respect to residential, Space, I think the problem easily gets solved because people are moving out in the countryside with lots and lots of space around them at a third the cost of their small downtown condo. And other people who want to live in the downtown condo are moving in. I think it's the commercial waste that's a big unsolved issue.
0: Right. But, the, and, and that's, that's the thing, right? Because is that with people moving out, uh, into, you know, areas where there's more space. Uh, and like you said, others that are moving into the downtown core, you know, is the driver. You know, we hear also the fact that, you know, people who will go back to the office, you know, will have, you know, uh, greater visibility and therefore, you know, more success in their career. And so, you know, there's this kind of stuff that's, you know, being said out in the marketplace, which I personally don't think that there's truth to that. Uh, and it's how ludicrous is it to think that, you know, your place of work or your office, you know, dictates your quality of life. You know, recently I, I wrote something on LinkedIn about how for years we've been talking about, you know, work-life balance. Um, and I think that the shift now because of the pandemic has caused a lot of people to reflect more so on their quality of life. What kind of life do they want to live? Is it you know always about work and always being on all the time and allowing themselves you know the or giving themselves the permission to slow things down a little bit and realize that there's more to life than just you know working all the time and so i I think that that's potentially what's causing the tension and instead sort of all of this you know fallout that's happening around you know uh you know people not wanting to go back to work people resigning because they're just kind of thinking about where they are in life and really what they want. Maybe they were in a job that they really didn't enjoy doing. And, you know, because of the pandemic and the time that they had, you know, as a result of some of the, the time that they gained as, you know, maybe from not commuting or whatever the circumstances has allowed them to, you know, learn a different skill that now has opened the doors for other uh, other opportunities and so it's interesting in terms of just the changes that are happening in society as a whole because of this this change in, in, in dependency on office space. Well,
1: I have a close relative who uh, left his job, which is almost exactly the same as, as his old job, uh, because of issues with uh, management and mm-hmm. because he wanted to work remotely. Now, let's talk about remotely. Once upon a time, I foolishly answered uh, uh, an ad in uh, LinkedIn because I wanted to know what this kind of person did. Since then, every week I get lists of jobs for me. So last week, there were 10 jobs for me, and seven of them were remote. I think the train has left the station with respect to uh, people going back to the office. I don't think the industry likes to recognize it, and I think the industry should not be a Joe Biden. The other issue here is the only place I hear about people getting together, improving the culture, and working better is from real estate people. That could be because I'm not looking elsewhere, but it certainly isn't in the Sloan material I've just read five articles on.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's funny, because culture is another uh, topic that is intriguing to me in the sense of, you know, is culture something that was created by HR? Uh, Because people talk about, you know, how great their culture is. But then, you know, the experience that you have as an employee really determines how great that culture is. But nobody really talks about that. I mean, there's all the Side conversation about what it's really like to work in an organization versus what the organization thinks their culture, uh, is like. Uh, and it's actually funny because just this weekend I was talking to my, my sister who's, she was, she's currently looking for another job and she's a senior uh, person at uh, one of the consulting firms that she's working at. And I said to her, I'm like, you know, she's kind of exploring the tech space right now. And I said, oh, there's like a couple of, large organizations that are coming into Toronto and I named one of them and she's like oh no she's like you know uh you know I've heard about how great the culture of this particular organization is and she's like no she says you know I know a couple of people who work there and it's not it's not my cup of tea from a culture perspective right so it's kind of that thing of you know how how much in the past again we've been driven by this idea that culture is You know, what attracts people to an organization, and that might be true to some extent, but the culture, uh, you know, from an attraction perspective, potentially, but I don't know if it's the culture that keeps you there, because the culture is, what is culture? It's the sum of, you know, the behaviors. And so, to your point, is that if you're, if you're exploring positions that are remote in nature, that decision to work for a company that's offering a remote opportunity is telling you something about the culture. So you're going to make that decision based on does what this organization value align with what I value and therefore you make the decision. But once you've made that decision, I think something changes. There's got to be something else that kind of says, okay, yes, I'm going to continue my commitment to this employer or not. I know for me personally, there's, a deeper sense of value of, you know, you've got integrity, you've got, you know, you were saying at the beginning about, you know, the the leadership and how, you know, it's important to have supportive leadership. And I think that that's a lot of companies say that, but then you get in there and it's not really quite the way that they, they position that the leadership works. And I think the key is if the organization is willing to tolerate or how much the, the organization is willing to tolerate bad behavior. That's really where culture, let's put that in quotes, comes into play because that's more of a leadership thing than it is a culture, right? Is, is that, you know, your, your, your leadership team that your organization is looking up to is demonstrating a behavior and, you know, either people are going to, you know, eat it because they have to for whatever reason, and you're going to have others that are not. Sorry, go ahead. You were going to say something?
1: Yeah, I was going to uh, talk about uh, Indeed. Indeed, if you take a look at uh, whatever you look at from them, if you take a look at their jobs, uh, and you take a look at people giving recommendations, you see the questions about the company and about leadership. That's because those questionnaire have been created by two individuals called Donald Saul and Charles Saul of MIT, who use the answers to rank 500 companies with respect to what they think are important values. Now, they have 150 values. They think the top ones are agility, collaboration, collaboration customer orientation, diversity, execution, innovation, integrity, performance, and respect. And those, they then correlate with financial performance. And they mm-hmm. say people who are high on these uh, of the 150 variables of which you have talked about too, and they've talked about eight, do well in business. I don't see how well they retain employees. Uh, I think uh, we are going to see a sea change in the future. But to get back right to the beginning, what do the employees want? The employees want respect. They want to be able to talk without consequences, and they need to be listened to and listen to is very important and if they don't want to come to work telling them they don't need to come on Mondays and Fridays is not respectful
0: yeah that's um that's uh, as i said i think it's definitely a a, ch- a huge change from the perspective of our obligations or our commitments to working life actually i did a podcast um several weeks ago um with someone where we were talking about a case in the UK about a, a lady who uh, basically won, I think it was a hundred, I want to say 185,000 pounds uh, because her employer wouldn't allow her the flexibility to, you know, end her day a half an hour or so earlier. And it was a, you know, so there was a discussion around the inflexibility of the organization and should employees have the ability to dictate uh, you know, what they want. All right. Versus, you know, if an employer feels that, you know, their business should be run a certain way, then that's the employer's call to make and not the employees. And so you have this polarizing sort of debate around, you know, is it on the employee or is it on the employer to determine, you know, um, the, you know, the rules as it relates to working.
1: Well, the MIT study says that those companies where the employers dictate tend to have low financial performance. Uh, Companies with low financial performance can't Mm -hmm. contribute to society. So you get a double negative here. Uh, employers need to think out and rethink out, uh, what they are able to do. Just like countries and states and provinces and cities and people have thought out perhaps badly in some areas, what restrictions they can place on people who have or have not been vaccinated and who have and who have not been wearing masks. you got to address the problem.
0: So how do you think that they're determining low uh, financial performance? Because this widespread idea of, you know, working from home or working remotely or working anywhere or whatever it is that you want to call it, even hybrid for that matter, you know, didn't exist. Uh, Well, it existed, but it was a very small percentage of the population. And so this is all relatively new. So how are they making that assessment that, you know, companies that are not willing to adapt, that are, you know, low financial performing organizations?
1: Well, well, they have measured agility. Mm -hmm. They measured uh, collaboration, customer orientation. Those things are somewhat related to adaptability itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to see the 2021 version of this study, uh, which they don't say when it's coming out, but, uh, probably in the middle of next year when they may have included, uh, these particular values. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, the people who are talking about this among themselves Aren't working for the companies who are thinking differently than they are. So we got a gap here between the academics and what companies are really doing. And if I were a company and I had the answer to improving my performance with respect to oh, oh, a be my competitors, I'd be keeping my mouth shut.
0: So you're so basically, if I'm understanding, sort of your thinking is, is that the performance focus should be more so on how you optimize people performance and not necessarily how you optimize building or space performance.
1: Yeah. I'll give you one example. This happened about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I had a a job in a company where I went to work every day, but since I was a senior manager, I didn't have to. Friday morning, I woke up and said uh, to myself, Self, you've got two important projects to continue to finish by 4 o'clock today. If you go into the office, you're not going to get them done. If you stay at home and only work on those, you'll get them done. I stayed at home and worked 13 hours straight on those and other little things I wouldn't have gotten into. So I think there's a myth that uh, seeing people's faces and talking to them socially is necessarily an improvement of company culture. Remember the time when the concern was all this time is wasted at uh, uh, at the coffee machine? Now we need to pull them back in the office to get them to the coffee machine. we <laughs> got to stop thinking about variables that have not been demonstrated scientifically to matter.
0: So I'm going to ask you a question. So based on that, on that last uh, comment, who do you think is driving that agenda really? Cause I, I mean, yeah, the companies kind of have their position from a business strategy perspective, but it's interesting to watch the position that, you know, design firms take, the position that the furniture companies are taking, uh, construction, a little bit, maybe not so much, you know, the leasing uh, industry, like all of these sort of peripheral um, service providers that, you know, are pushing this. Yeah, the, you know, the workplace is still going to be prominent. There's still going to be a need for the workplace. It's, you know, the purpose is going to change. And then there's this whole discussion around how the space needs to be redesigned to now meet this new purpose that's being created, if you will, by a group that it's kind of like, is that really what the employees are asking for or saying? Because there seems to be conflicting sides,
1: right, where employees are
0: saying, yeah.
1: There are a lot of employees who are saying, why do I have to live in the 500-square-foot condo downtown so I can spend 50 or 60 hours a week in the office like my boss does? Why -hmm. can't I move out to Minnesota and buy a house that's 12 times as big for $150,000 and work remotely because I really got to get away from the office to do any real work? I think the employees are going to drive it. I think everybody who's trying to make the office a better place for today's employees are doing the right thing. But again, we can't be Joe Biden. We've got to look at Plan B or Plan C or Plan D. How do we boost our overall culture scores, not to drag people into the office, so we can boost our productivity? And that MIT is measuring.
0: So do you think the future will be much more focused on productivity uh, and sort of those types of measures or do you think at some point sustainability and climate change will will be at basically leading this this change because it I is think, now kind of but it's still I think it's still it still feels like it's lagging a little bit productivity is still front and center
1: I think they're all intertwined because if you make mistakes in planning climate change, your fuel costs will go up in the short run. And since your stock price is measured every three months, it hurts you and the value uh, you have gotten from the company uh, for those shareholders. So I think it's all got to be pulled together. But unfortunately, with our divisive uh, political climate, it's really hard for government to do its job and pull people together to deal with common issues very well.
0: So what's next? What do you foresee as the, as the future of work?
1: Well, the elephant in the room is the pandemic. So we have to see what happens with that before people begin to get back to the office, but people are voting with their feet now. And I do believe, that uh, savvy companies are looking at how to reconstruct themselves internally so that that's a good thing and not a bad thing. And guess what? Technology is the way to do so.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. Any final comments? Uh,
1: Yeah. I think there is too much concern about going back to the past With respect to going back to the office, and I think we've all got to stop thinking like that, and stop pretending that we are going back to the past. Because 80% of companies saying they'll be reopening in January doesn't mean that 80 or or 40 or even 20% of the people will be in the business. We've got to stop fooling ourselves as an industry publicly or else we'll never be able to create those alternative strategies.
0: Great thoughts. Sheldon. thanks for sharing your perspectives. I've really enjoyed our conversation today.
1: Me too. Thank you for the opportunity, Sandra.